I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Uh, my name is Sean Hewitt, and I am very happy to be here tonight to uh, help with the launch of Kavit Akbar's wonderful, stunning, really impressive second collection, uh, Pilgrim Bell. Kava is the author of a debut collection, Calling a Wolf a Wolf, uh, which is also published by Penguin here. In and he is also the editor of a forthcoming collection, an anthology, The Penguin Book of Spiritual Verse, 100 Poets on the Divine, which I think as you hear Kava read from this collection, you'll understand uh, that there are many links between Kava's work and the uh, poetry of the divine. Kava became poetry editor of The Nation in 2020, and his second collection, uh, Pilgrim Bell, is the one that we're here to celebrate today. Kava's collection drew up a really rare feeling in me of affection uh, for its author, uh, a real impression of the intellect and, and skill, both formal and imaginative, of, of Kava's work. And it also uh, made me very envious, and I'm sure you'll see why. It's really exacting, supple, shifting poetry. It answers this call to prayer. It's uh, peppered throughout, uh, or punctuated perhaps, uh, by this pilgrim bell, uh, a series of poems uh, called Pilgrim Bell. Uh, and it answers this call to prayer in various ways. It meets uh, prayer in memory, in the body, in explorations of masculinity, history, uh, what it means to, to live in America today. And all the way through, Kava moves really elegantly. There's something about his poetry and his handling of syntax that manages to turn a phrase or, or to turn logic back on itself, to keep on questioning. It's never uh, settled or certain poetry. It always seems open, uh, open to revising itself, open to open-endedness. This comes through, I think, in, a, in an interesting line. If you're immortal, God better be too. Otherwise, otherwise, there's this point at which the line turns and you can hear the speaker questioning themselves, turning logic around and around. Heaven, Kava Akbar writes, is all preposition, above, among, around, within. And I think that perhaps gets best to the heart of the poems in this collection, which are constantly aware of some mystery, some spiritual core, and are searching for uh, the location of it, the access point to it. Uh, and also in that way, uh, searching through the access points of the body uh, and the intellect, the way that we might describe the undescribable, uh, the way in which a poem might be like a prayer. Uh, the way in which a body uh, might uh, move or change over time, how it might be sacred, how it might be in some ways profane, uh, and also uh, the difference between these two things, what is sacred and what is profane. Kaba Akbar is a tender and a vulnerable poet too. Uh, he has a capability for brutality, but also uh, for a real rare uh, beauty, I think. This was called up to me uh, and evoked most clearly, I think, uh, in one of his poems, which, and I urge you to get this collection. You have to see the, the poems in the way they're written down, but this one emerges uh, in a square and it deals with embodiment, uh, the sacred and the spiritual, and also, I think, inspiration, which I think in Kaba's book draws on a number of meanings, uh, both the breath as in to inspire, to breathe in, uh, and also the spirit and that interplay between the breath and the spirit is all the way through this book. Bright dust, Kaba writes, pillowed floor. We see our prayers as we say them. I would like to welcome Kaba now. He's going to read to us for about 10 minutes and then I'm going to ask him some questions and then we might come back uh, and continue the conversation. So uh, if you join me in welcoming. Thank you so much. That was incredible. I wish I could just sit here 
and listen to Sean speak. <laughs> I mean, not selfishly about my book, of course, but just about poetry in general. It's such an incredible privilege to be the beneficiary of such attention and generosity. So thank you for it. Thank you, Claire and Thom and, um, and everyone at LRB for um, moving your hands behind the curtains to make this happen. And thank you, everybody, for the gift of your time and your attention. Again, it's our most irreplenishable resource, and I'm sincerely grateful for it. Um, I'm just going to read a, a couple poems, and then maybe Sean and I can speak some more. The first poem that I will read is called, from the very beginning of the book, it's called The Miracle. It orbits the precipitating miracle in Islam, which was the revelation of the Quran to the Prophet Muhammad. Um, it is, the, the story goes that in Islam, um, the Prophet was alone and fasting in a cave and, uh, and sort of just camping. And the angel Gabriel came and told him to read. And he, like many people in his time and place in the world, was illiterate and said so, said to the face of an archangel, sorry, I can't help you. I'm illiterate, you know? And so the angel gives him literacy. And so literacy is sort of parallel to the virgin birth in Christianity or Catholicism in particular as the, the bedrock, the catalytic. This, uh, this, this, this orbits that. The miracle. Gabriel seizing the illiterate man alone and fasting in a cave and commanding, read. The man saying, I can't. Gabriel squeezing him tighter, commanding, read. The man gasping, I don't know how. Gabriel squeezing him so tight he couldn't breathe, squeezing out the air of protest, the air of doubt, crushing it out of his crushable human body, saying, read in the name of your Lord who created you from a clot. And thus, literacy, revelation, it wasn't until Gabriel squeezed away what was empty in him that the prophet could be filled with miracle. Imagine the emptiness in you, the vast cavities you have spent your life trying to fill with fathers, mothers, lovers, language, drugs, money, art, praise, and imagine them gone. What's left? Whatever you aren't, which is what makes you. A house useful not because it's floorboards or ceilings or walls, but because the empty space between them. Gabriel isn't coming for you. If he did, would you call him Jibril or Gabriel like you are here? Who's this even for? One crisis at a time. Gabriel isn't coming for you. Cheese on a cracker. A bit of salty fish. Somewhere a man is steering a robotic plane into murder. Robot from the Czech robota, meaning forced labor, murder labor. Forced, he never sees the bodies which are implied by their absence, like feathers on a paper bird. Gabriel isn't coming for you. In the absence of cloud parting, trumpet blaring clarity, what? More living, more money, lazy sex, mother, brother, lover. You travel and bring back silk scarves, a bag of chocolates, for you don't know who yet. Someone will want them. Deliver them to an empty field. You fall asleep facing the freckle on your wrist. Somewhere, a woman presses a button that locks metal doors with people behind them. The locks are useful to her because there is an emptiness on the other side that holds the people's lives in place. She doesn't know the names of the people. Anonymity is an ancillary feature of the locks. Ancillary from the Latin anquila, meaning servant an emptiness to hold all their living. You created from a clot. Gabriel isn't coming for you. You too full to eat, 
you too locked to door, too cruel to wonder. Gabriel isn't coming, you too loved to love, too speak, to hear, too wet, to drink. No, Gabriel, you too pride to weep, you too play to still, you too high to come. No, Gabriel won't be coming for you, too fear to move, you too pebble to stone, too saddle to horse, too crime to pay. Gabriel, no, not anymore, you too gone to save, too bloodless to martyr, too diamond to charcoal, too nation to earth, you brute cruel pebble gabriel god of man no he's on a cracker mercy mercy i'll read two more and then we'll get back to talking this is called mothers i once was mother fingers in the mud mother begging bowl Mother lace weaver drumming her web, babies eating her whole. Bleachable mother. Mother apron smeared with flour. Mother flower. Mother Florida, the wet bone, the marble throne. Mother sent back. Mother bent back, curling like script. Mother depended on light. Mother? Depends on the night. Mother for whom the whole sky. Mother hiding in the curtains, humming too loud. Maggot mother at the shroud. Mother thought it possible. Mother was wrong. Mother song. Our lady mother of wet beds and aggressive disgrace. Mother persimmon name sounds the way she tastes. Mother with all of creation fattening. Mother who held on while it was happening. There are six poems in this book called Pilgrim Bell, which is also the title of the book, which is a thing that people do. And I'm going to read one of the uh, one of the last ones. This is called Pilgrim Bell. The self I am today involves me as a lake involves its cattails. It bears me, tolerates my cotton. I would prefer not to be outlived by anyone. I reserve the right to refuse enchantment. The fables I tell always end wrong. The good archer dead by a stream, the villains counting their gold. I am so vulnerable to visionaries and absolute certainty. Tell me how to live and I will live that way. Thank you so much for that, Kava. It was so lovely to hear you read those three poems, uh, particularly because, uh, gratifyingly for me, they, they kind of match in with the questions that I have. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> but on our part, accidentally. Yeah, uh, that's very kind of you. I wanted to start with something that prompted me uh, from the end of that final Pilgrim Bell poem that you wrote. This idea. I'm so vulnerable to visionaries and absolute certainty. Your poems in this collection are, they seem to me, oriented in a really open way. They seem to uh, take in various points of view, even in this, uh, the, the mother poem you read, 
various uh, iterations of the self, various um, ways in which we might relate to a, to a, a question or, or a person or, or an idea. I wonder if you could speak a little bit about this open-endedness in the poems. If it, is it something that you recognize yourself in the poems? And was that a stance that you, you know, it's, it seems to me a very it, it opens space in a poem for you to change your mind, for you to, to be many things. Um, and I wonder if that was something that, that came through this idea of prayer or, or, or the holy space in the poem or, you know, maybe you could speak about that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that one of the projects of this book that, matched one of the projects of my psycho-spiritual maturation during the time of my writing this book was learning to sit in uncertainty and unknowing without groping feebly and desperately to resolve it. You know, you know, you, you, you talked about how you were teaching Yates today, you know, and, and or beforehand, right. And he, talks about you know the best like all conviction all the worst are full of passionate intensity right and i mean it just seems like we are in a moment and i I don't want to speak prescriptively but i think that a lot of factors in our moment conspire towards situating a person within the language of rhetorical certainty and i'm really really skeptical of that language when i hear that language i associate that sort of language with zealots and tyrants, right? Frankly. And, um, and what I, I haven't been on social media in a few years, but when I was on social media, I found myself, I, I started to hear myself speaking in this language, you know, speaking in the language of certainty, like, Oh, you should all do this, or, you know, we should all be thinking this way or this, you know, and, you know, I, I am completely, when I hear that language personally, I shut down, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I, I, I'm just so profoundly skeptical of people who seem to um, be absolute and uh, and I'm so profoundly interested in people who seem to be permeable to um, being inflected by a new experience and permeable to the world around them and supple. So the, the book as a whole is a project of disabusing myself of certainties and down to down to the form of those poems right like the period is the grammatical demarcator of rhetorical certainty right like the period the two types of sentences in the english language that take the period are called imperative and declarative right like you can tell you go do something or like i declare it right i mean like what's what's more certain than a command or a, de- a declaration you know what i mean yeah. um and so these poems that are sort of super saturated with these periods right sort of teach me as a writer and as a reader to sort of look past the period, right? Or to or, or to sort of play some of that grammatical certainty from this punctuation mark upon which everything else in the language is contingent, right? I'm sort of I'm sort of spinning away from your initial question a little bit, but I do think that, yeah, I, you know, the final line of the poem, I'm so vulnerable to the visionaries and absolute certainty, right? I mean <laughs> it's a very bald, true statement, you know, like it's not it's not even particularly tell me how to live and I will live that way. It's not even a particular I mean, it doesn't scan well. It's just a true, ugly fact about myself. Right. And uh, and I think a lot of this book is just saying the true, ugly fact about myself that doesn't scan well. You know, there there are a lot of those kinds of moments in this book, which was useful for me to to try to. Yeah, I don't know. There's something there's something about disabusing myself of the need to aestheticize everything that felt interesting. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I, you know, the, the very opening line of that poem, the self I am today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's such a striking idea because it, it made me think of, you know, the, the way in which often, you know, whether it's in a novel or a poem or a collection of poems, uh, we kind of expect the I or the self of the poem to be consistent or, or to be yeah. kind of right through the, the poem. And and one thing I really loved about this poem, and it kind of comes back to that idea of the, the periods, is that your many selves are in this 
uh, and and I think drawing our attention to the fact that the the speaker of this book is not one person at all at all times, and yeah. in that way can contradict, uh, or in that way can make, as you said, a a, a statement of bold truth about yourself. Yeah. Uh, but that's another poem, you know, not contradict that truth, but but be in a different self that that time or in yeah. that life. And so the you know one thing I really loved about the the book was that you you seem to keep on turning over um ideas and seeing them you know it's like a little crystal and you see a flash of light in every uh every time you turn it and uh, you see something different and as you go through the book you know i said in my introduction i i felt a great affection for the speaker of this collection because i felt that i had got to know more than just a lyric eye yeah. uh, as we went through the book because there are so many selves coming through it um you know, it's really lucky. It's really lucky. It's not a passive thing to make yourself permeable to that energy, right? To to be open to that. So I'm grateful for that. Well, one of the things I wanted to ask you about this book, I'm not a theologian at all, um, but that first poem you read, The Miracle, mm -hmm. uh, there was one line that struck me and it made me think about uh, the poem in the grand terms uh, in, a, in a different way. Imagine the emptiness in you, the vast cavities you have spent your life trying to fill with fathers, mothers, lovers, language, drugs, money, art, praise, and imagine them gone. What's left? Whatever you aren't, which is what makes you. And I may have misunderstood uh, a part of this theology, but I believe there's, there's something called apophasis, uh, apophatic, yeah. in which you kind of describe everything uh, by what it's not, uh, you know, yeah. uh, I, I don't know if that's a fair kind of uh, definition. Of it. That's perfect. Um, it seemed like you were either gesturing towards that idea here, the, the idea of what is left as a, of a person, uh, which is whatever you want. Um, and it made me think that perhaps a poem is a form of kind of apophasis, as in, you know, there's, there's always something that we can't get to. We're describing our way around something and you know even in that mother poem you you're attempting a new idea every line in yeah. order to close to something you never really have to say the thing you can dance around this kind of center of unsayable things and i wonder if that kind of resonates with how you were thinking about the the, the book in um no it's tremendous that's tr that's tremendously perceptive and uh and generous and yeah thank you for that um yeah apophasis is hugely important to me rhetorically theologically i mean there's a moment in the um the musician brian you know he has this book uh called a year with swollen appendices where um he has this moment where he's talking about listening to like a a, a blues record like a billy holiday record or a sarah Vaughan record he talks about hearing the singer's voice crack on the record like you know like the they hit a note that's like too too high for the you know and and the voice cracks and he calls that the sound of witnessing an emotional event too momentous for the medium assigned to record it the sound of witnessing an emotional event too momentous for the medium assigned to record it and i feel like everything that i'm interested in is too momentous for the technology of the english language to record you know what i mean like everything that i'm and so how can i show how can I show that? How can I show the insufficiency of the medium, right? Mm -hmm. Like how can I center the insufficiency of the medium in such a way that the reader understands that what I'm pointing towards isn't what is contained within the language, but that actually the language is the negative space poured around the mold of that thing, right? Like that's what I'm so, so, so invested, right? And, you know, of course, you know, this is the sort of thing one spends a lifetime just Sort of marching towards the horizon of and never actually arriving at but yeah i mean and you and you speak of it perfectly right like so like an apophatic image right would be like the fingerless hand with no palm right like a like an image that recedes from view the more language you add to it right um but to but to instead of the fingerless hand with no palm try to apprehend justice or love or god or loneliness or exile right like um or desire right to use that technology because what we can apprehend with language with this invented technology are the things that it is if if i could say to you sean right now 
talking over Zoom and across you know continents, what I mean when I say the word desire, I wouldn't need the poem. You know what I mean? The reason that I go to the poem is because it can sort of wrap around this thing. You know, it can sort of orbit this thing in the manner of electrons sort of whirring around an atom in a in a cloud. You know. You know, I always uh, just it's in my head because I was teaching Ulysses the other week, and there's a thing that Joyce says, classic Joyce, that um, you know, I've I've realized I can make language do whatever I want. And I think I was struck by the fact that he doesn't say I can make language say whatever I want. Hmm. Like there's a big difference in that, you know, when you were talking there about the difference between the, the thing that you can't say and what you can make language do mm-hmm. and actually make language do loads of things. Um, but getting into that heart is, is very difficult. And, yeah. uh, you know, the difference between doing and saying uh, or, or uh, you know, like you said, saying desire. Um, yeah and carrying that idea over. Do you want to read a couple more poems and then uh, we can come in with audience questions or I can keep on berating you with questions. <laughs> no, 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 this is, this is truly lovely. I mean, you know, it's not every day one gets to be read as perceptively as this. Yeah, but yeah, I'll read maybe, this is called an oversight. I murdered my least defensible vices, stacking them like bodies in the surf. An armada of nurses rode in to cherish the dead. Try harder, little moons, they said to the corpses. Winter followed winter. Horses coughed blood into the sand. Some pain stays so long. Its absence becomes a different pain. They say it's not faith if you can hold it in your hands, but I suspect the opposite may be true. That real faith passes first through the body, like an arrow. Consider our whole galaxy staked in place by a single star. I fear we haven't said nearly enough about that. Yeah, maybe one more. This is called um, Reading Ferexod in a Pandemic. Um, Farouk Ferexod was a, probably the most important Iranian poet of the 20th century. Sort of like Plath or Sexton, I guess. She sort of uh, wrote about femininity and family and sexuality in a way that was really unprecedented. And, um, in Persian literature up until that point. And she also died young and people are sort of inordinately obsessed with her personal life in the same way as with Plath and Sexton, right? You know, like how you can go on eBay and buy a lock of Plath's hair or whatever. Um, people are sort of like creepy in the same way about Fedoxod, but um, this is called Reading Fedoxod in a Pandemic. The title is a lie. I can't read Farsi. I can make out. We lose. We lose. I type it into a translation app. We have lost everything we need to lose. In between what I read and what is written, need everything. Here, the waving flag. Here, the other world. Because we need mail, people die. Because we need groceries, people die. I write, we need, knowing we dilutes my responsibility, like watercolors dipped in a fast river. Get behind me, English. When I text to my dad, he writes back, we have lost whatever we had to lose. Hammering pentameter, 
whatever we had. People die because they look like him. My uncle jailed, his daughter killed. This is a real fact too wretched for letters. And yet, my uncle jailed, his daughter killed. Waving whirl, the other flag. There is room in the language for being without language. So much of wet is old. So much of diamond is light. I want both my countries to be right to fear me. We have lost whatever we had to lose. That's so beautiful. I really want to. Um, is, is there a, a translation and like a collective poems of. Mm-hmm. Can you pronounce that name again? Faroxad? Yeah, Faroxad. Yeah. Yeah, F A R R O K H Z A D. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a transliteration, and so you might That's, see it spelled other ways sometimes, um, but I need to read. Um, yeah, oh, she's incredible. Yeah, yeah, she has, um, she has a new translation out, um, that's pretty good. She has an older one done by into English, I mean, by the poet Shole Wope, which is good as well, called Sin. Thank you. I love this, this poem, um, that you just read, read with the uh, turning over of loss and lose um mm. echoes again in your poem yeah as well the brilliant last poem of this uh, collection you have uh, some questions from very esteemed people sure um mariam hasabi who uh, is a wonderful poet and critic is uh, hi mariam um is asking you um she, she says kevin thanks uh, for your reading and time today it's a joy uh, I wondered how you might think your writing or thought even might have changed, if at all, since your previous collection. If so, were there any conscious decisions or exercises you took or was it a natural transformation? Yeah. Um, thank you, Miriam, uh, for for being here and for being attentive. Yeah, it's definitely I mean, it feels very different to me than my first collection. So I'm probably it's like trying to describe a cloud from inside the cloud, right? It just kind of looks all puffy and miasmic to me, but it might be more readily apprehended from on the ground. But, you know, one thing that I can say is that my first book came out in a time when I was living a relatively hermetical life. You know, I was busy falling in love with my spouse, but I was just sort of you know, other than that, there was nothing really going on save, or my now spouse, uh, there was nothing going on save, you know, I, I taught two classes a week. And besides that, I had no, I was just a PhD student, you know, and, um, and I was just desperately trying to not accidentally kill myself by relapsing, you know, I was just, and so I had stripped basically everything out of my life. And so my life was very quiet. And then in between the two books, my life got quite a bit noisier. You know, I got married, I got a big kid job, I began traveling a little bit more. And, and so I began to become really interested in silence as a kind of architectonic element in the poems and some of the ways that we've been talking about, right? Um, Silence as the substance of the poems and language as the thing that gives shape to the substance. I mean, and, and I mean this in like, it sounds like I'm speaking like, really kind of abstractly or esoterically, but I mean it in an almost like kind of snotty way. Like I got like really um, annoyed by noise, you know, I became very sensitive to um, overstimulate, you know, I, I left all social media in between the two books and, and that was one way of limiting the noise in my life. And, um, but I became really, there's a, there's a um, uncollected short story by um, Beckett. I forget the name of it but he and there's a moment where he says he's like it's a character speaking contemptuously of another character and he says every word he said was an unnecessary stain on silence (laughs) and it's so good right i mean we all know you know people like this but um it it began to be this thing where like i i was like feeling myself becoming like almost misanthropic in that specific way you know what i mean like i would just be like 
among people and I'd be like, you're just saying things to like fill the side, you know, like you're just like narrating our perception. You're not, you're not actually communicating, you know? And, and so I became really interested in creating silence in the poems, um, which doesn't mean that there aren't moments of loudness, but I mean, like, you know, I, I really like, for instance, the silence of the metaphysical poets like Marvell or, done um or or even you know hopkins who everyone thinks of as like this very bombastic you know staccato exclamatory poet but but after his exclamations you know it's like the it's like the silence following a gunshot is made all the more silent for its contrast to the sound that preceded it right you know you heard in the poems that i read you know the first poem that i read is quite a or it gets quite loud right and then the third poem that i read the pilgrim bell poem to my mind feels quite a bit more silent for the loudness that preceded it. You know, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I realize that in this, in this answer, I've sort of situated myself in a lineage of like Hopkins and Marvell. And that's not what I'm trying to do, but I'm just saying like, these are, these are people who were the sort of masters of a technique that I'm interested. In. So yeah. yeah, that, that, that relationship to silence feels very different to me in the two books. Yeah. It's a, you, you reminded me there of, I, I don't know if it's Alice Oswald, if Alice Oswald was quoting Elliot or if she was quoting someone else and now I've just mm-hmm. pretended. um, This idea kind of poetry, I I think it's something like all poetry is punctuation in the, you know, it's punctuated silence, you know, it's it's, uh, kind of scoring uh, the silence in that way. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry we don't get a chance to talk about the metaphysical poets because I had questions. No, yeah. And so in the fullness of time, we'll be able to get to it corporeally someday and we'll be able to have that conversation too. I want to make sure that we get through uh, the audience questions so I don't hog you. Liliana is uh, uh, is asking, um, your parents feel very generous in the vulnerability and curiosity you offer around uncertainty, pain, bewilderment. I'm curious if there are any principles you hold around self-disclosure in your work. Uh, how do you decide what to share of yourself and what to keep? And perhaps uh, I can just segue another question here. Alejandro, that's kind of something similar, uh, an anxiety. Uh, is there an anxiety in the poems about disappointing uh, someone, either the reader or a subject? Uh, is this illogical of wanting your poems to kind of come up short instead of meeting kind of a typical mm. success? So uh, I guess vulnerability, uncertainty, uh, self-disclosure. Uh, yeah. Yeah, no, these are these are beautiful and critical questions. Thank you, um, Liliana and Alejandro both. Yeah, I the first thing that I will say is that there is a vast difference for me um, between composition and publication. Right. And so I I write, you know, I'm someone who writes a lot. Right. I I, um, I write a great you know, this book could have been three times the length if I was, you know, more sort of self-indulgent or, you know, um, or if I had a, you know, a more, uh, an editor who indulged me more, but, uh, you know, I write a lot and I, I don't publish nearly everything I write, you know, like write little poems for my spouse. you know, one of my favorite poems that I wrote that I really wanted to put in this book, um, was a (laughs) rebuttal to, there's a there's a line in confessions where augustine says um we must admit that even a even a crying man is better than a laughing worm um that's that's a direct quote from augustine in confessions and i was like must we you know like you know i don't, I don't know and so i wrote i wrote a poem about like a worm who can't stop laughing and and i really loved this poem you know but my editor probably rightly said that it didn't necessarily belong right um and so anyways this to say there's you know so when i'm composing you know i'll write anything you know i i I'll, i can put anything in a poem when i'm composing right because that is purely for me and then once i'm sitting there with a stack of poems um i might then begin to say will this delight and instruct if i put it in the world will this you know i'm i'm uh plagiarizing horace and saying that but you know will this um be useful to put in the world, right? Will this be useful to anyone but myself or my own ego? I think that one of the lies that empire tells us is that the most interesting thing about ourselves is the worst thing that ever happened to us, or that the worst thing that ever happened to us is the most interesting thing, right? And I think that um, because of this lie, a lot of emerging poets practice this kind of like 
relentless self-exposure, right? Saying like, you know, I, I went and talked to my therapist today and here's what she told me about, you know, the, the worst things about myself, you know, and, and, um, and again, like this may be, this may be interesting and useful for the poet, but, you know, the comedian Richard Pryor said that he wanted to get you laughing so that your mouth would be open so he could pour the poison down. Right. And, and I think that, I think that a lot of these kinds of poems that I'm describing are like just handing you a vial of poison and then demanding compliance. You know what I mean? Like, here's the poison. Drink that. You know what I mean? And <laughs> and yeah, and I and I and I think that getting that laugh is important. Right. And and I, I'm I'm fucking up this metaphor, but, you know, getting the laugh, meaning like, um, you know, delighting by means of an unprecedented encounter with language or an unprecedented encounter with experience or something something that works its way in through the ear first right before it then penetrates the mind right so yeah i mean i i think that there are i certainly and i'll also say that like a huge part of my life that i don't talk about in fancy spaces like these with you know brilliant critics um is working in recovery spaces and um in in carceral institutions with people in recovery spaces and in these spaces i'm just like here's all the worst shit i ever did you know now tell me yours you know what i mean like and and um and so i you know i don't really have a lot of hang you know it, it, i'm the worst shit i ever did is pretty googleable you know um and so there's not a <laughs> there's not a lot of um there's not a lot that I have left to um, try to disclose, you know, um, but uh, I'm, I'm sort of shameless in this way. But so, yeah, all, all of these things factor into that relationship. Um, and then to Alejandro's question, sorry, I realized that um, I sort of mostly focused on the first part of that question. The idea of disappointing the reader is sort of inevitable, again, when you're using a technology like language. I mean, I guess there's something to be said for like reaching for a low hanging fruit and then successfully grabbing it, you know, and there are poets who, well, I, I don't know why I'm just taking shots, but you know, like there, there, if I think any poet who writes with a sense of discernible stakes will have that sort of quixotic awareness that they're going to fail to perfectly render the thing and still sort of gallop into it all the same. Right. The, you know, it, ma it makes me think of like Magritte's treachery of images, right? Like the, the, the ceci n'est pas un but, you know, like the, this is not a pipe, right? Like this is not the desire, right? Like this is not the justice. This is not the exile, right? The poem will never be that thing, right? But it is a synecdoche or a facsimile or it'll illuminate or complicate some tiny little tendril of that thing, right? Um, and I think that the reader is aware that that is what they're going into the poem for, right? Which is, I think disappointment is a really interesting word for it. You know, what you were saying before with the well, Hopkins is, you know, you have the bomb going off and then you have the silence afterwards, mm -hmm. uh, the blackbird whistling or just after. Um, mm -hmm. In some way, kind of what what you're saying made me think sometimes it's, it's the, the silence after the poem where the poem happens, you know, yeah. the noise, and then you kind of tumble the reader into this blank space at the bottom. And yeah. Hope they fall into something <laughs> like a hundred percent, a hundred percent. There's a Jean Valentine poem. This is one of my, one of my desert Island poems, but it, in its entirety, um, it goes, I, the poem is called, I came to you. I came to you Lord because of the fucking reticence of the world. No, not reticence, not the world. Oh, Lord, come, Lord, come. We were sad on the ground. Lord, come. We were sad on the ground. And that poem is like 40 words in its entire, you know, but, but, but everything about that poem is in what isn't said, you know, like it's like her frustration to articulate the thing, right? Like I came to you, Lord, because of the fucking reticence of the world. No, not the world, not reticence. Oh, you know, like that. Oh, like I fucked it up. Like I, I, you know, I just wasted two lines trying to say a thing and I didn't get it right. You know, like the, the, everything in that, po like the entire poem is what isn't said, you know? Yeah. Um, that's extraordinary. Yeah. Again, now that like the hand with no, no fingers and no bars. Yeah, 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 yeah. The, fingerless hands the of, the, of the idea as you go through the poem. Um, all right, well, one last question, because uh, yeah. it gives a good segue as well. Uh, this is from Claire uh, from the LRB. Could you perhaps tell us a little bit about the Penguin Book of Spiritual Verse uh, and perhaps also the importance of reading 
your work. Um, which is something I was going to ask too. Uh, uh, so perhaps were there any poets that you discovered that uh, became useful or was the process of putting together this anthology instrumental on Pilgrim Bell or was it the other way around? How did that look? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, the anthology was in, <laughs> the anthology was instrumental on Pilgrim Bell. Yeah. I, um, and thank you, Claire. Yeah. I, uh, so it's an, it's called the Penguin Anthology of Spiritual Verse, 110 Poets on the Divine. Um, I think is the title that they've landed upon, but um, I, should, I should really know this. They it's it's I've been working on it for five, six years now at this point. Uh, it's very much, you know, it begins in 2300 B.C. with the earliest attributable author in all of human literature, which is Enheduanna, Sumerian priestess, and goes from her to, um, you know, through the Bhagavad, through Gilgamesh and then the Bhagavad Gita and, you know, all the way through, you know, uh, Song of Songs and the Psalms and um, all the way into, you know, the present, you know, um, Yeats and Clifton and whatever. And so, you know, obviously the project of chronicling the entire human corpus of spiritual writing would be measured in libraries, not pages, right? And this is a slim, you know, 300 whatever page anthology, right? But in trying to create something that felt at least again, like a sort of miniature of a of a conversation and not just like the romantics and metaphysics and then maybe like Rumi and Sappho for color or whatever you know but like actually reflective of the entire earth's history um i had to learn a lot about you know i didn't know a lot about mesoamerican oral traditions or antipodian aboriginal traditions or sub-saharan african poetries or or the vedic text you know, I had to learn a lot about these things. And one of the really, really cool things that um, some people have told me on um, encountering um, just the, the digital pages of this anthology is that, you know, a lot of the names were new to them. Um, a lot of the people in the anthology were new to them. And then they Google someone and they realized that this was like a titan upon which an entire tradition was built. You know what I mean? Like maybe maybe you've never heard of Mahadevyaka, right? And then you Google her and you realize that she's like one of the pillars of Indian literature, right? Um, but um, because, you know, I, I can't speak as well to British and reading habits in the UK, but in America, the the literary appetite is so provincial, right? Like it's, it's, it's nuts, you know, like 4% of the world's literature is originally composed in English and um, something like 98% of the literature that's sold in America was originally composed in English, right? Which is like totally backwards and both you know and it's like if you it's it's the I, I talk to my students about this but it's like if the only newspaper you ever read was whatever the delaware daily bugle or whatever you know um you'd have a pretty narrow view of what was going on in the world right you'd have a pretty narrow you wouldn't know a lot about what was going on in the world you'd know a lot about what was going on in delaware right but not a lot about what was going on in the world right and and it's the same thing with like the way that we read right it's like we know a lot about the issues that affect contemporary Americans in the past, like two and a half years, right? But um, but the vast majority of humanity isn't and hasn't been living Americans in the past two and a half years, right? And and so that overcoming that provinciality, both geographically and temporally, right? Because we tend to read living authors, right? Has been critical, right? And And it's cool too, because like then you you realize that like it, to answer the second part of the question, one of the great things that this does is disabuses me of the notion that I really have to do anything with my writing. Right. Because, you know, if Dante couldn't figure it out, if Hafez couldn't figure it out and Basho couldn't figure it out and Mirabai couldn't figure it out and Sappho couldn't figure it out, like I'm not going to do it. You know what I mean? Like I don't, you know, if they couldn't figure out how to like, arrest the global specter of fascism and uh and halt man's corrosive impact on the planet and you know and all of these things you know and like apprehend the nature of man's cruelty to man right like like if they couldn't figure all this shit out like you know me sitting in indiana i'm not gonna do it you know and so like it frees me up to write what i actually need to write without that sort of like immobilizing sense of like i have to fix everything with the next line you know yeah it sounds like an incredible book. I can't wait to, to read it. 
Uh, yeah, I can't wait to hold it in my hands too. It's been yeah, a long yeah. time in the making. All right, I think uh, we may have to wrap up. Uh, Kevin, would you like to read a, a short oh, poem sure. to read us out? Um, so I will leave the last word to you, Kevin, but I just want to say thank you uh, to uh, Claire and Tom at the LRB, uh, to wonderful audience, Kevin, you for this wonderful book. Uh, when I was reading it, the first thing that came to mind after I finished it was George Herbert's uh, one of the definitions of prayer um, he has, which is uh, the soul in paraphrase, the heart in the <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. So um, thank you very much. It's, it's a real gift. Uh, and I hope everyone uh, goes, goes and buys it. Um, and I will let you uh, play us out. That's incredible. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Everyone should be gifted by having been read so well. Um, and so maybe we can do this when uh, when your memoir comes out later on. We can do si do, and I'll be the I'll be the you. Um, okay, yeah, I'll read one more poem. Thank you to Claire and um, Tom and everybody who's um, everyone who's here and everyone who made this happen. The LRB. Maybe I'll just read uh, the very first poem in the book. is uh, is another Pilgrim Bell poem. Um, thank you all again, and I'll I'll just I'll just leave after this. So thank you so much. This is called Pilgrim Bell. Dark on both sides makes a window into a mirror. A man holds his palms out to gather dew through the night, uses it to wash before dawn prayer. Only a God can turn himself into a God. The earth buckles, almond trees bow to their own roots. Fear comes only at our invitation, but it comes, it came. Thank you so much, everybody. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.